Welcome to Tentpole Trauma, the podcast where we look at movies that came with hype and high hopes, but left with crushing disappointment, either critically, at the box office, or both. Freed from the weight of expectations, we seek to examine these underperformers under a new light, parsing through the good, the bad, and everything in between with the hopes of gaining a better understanding as to why they failed to find their audience. Warning, there will be spoilers, so if you haven't seen the movie that we're discussing today, I suggest you stop the podcast and go watch it. Then when you come back and listen, you'll get more out of the discussion. On this episode, we discuss Twin Peaks, Fire Walk With Me. Okay, I am Sebastian, and I'm here with Jennifer. Hello. And Troy. Hello. Yay. The three of us have convened here today to talk some David Lynch, and specifically Twin Peaks, and even more specifically, Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me, the 1992 post-series film that was released uh, to sort of cash in on the popularity of the show that did very poorly both at the box office and with critics and with fans with fans jen why don't we start with you what is your history with twin peaks the show i watched it when it was on tv and i liked the show i remember the movie coming out i did not see it in the theater I remember also like being obsessed with Laura Palmer's diary and they had um, like put out a diary of hers. I remember. Yeah. And I remember and I was thinking about this the other day and I'm like, why didn't I just ask to get it? I don't know why I didn't, but I I have like a really strong memory of going to Walden Books with my mom as we did because my mom read a lot and I did too. And she was like getting shopping or getting books or whatever. And I was reading Laura Palmer's diary in Walden books. Like I was taking in as much as I could. And I'm like, I don't know why I just wasn't like, can I just get this? But anyway, this movie came out and I saw it on, um, I think it was, was it DVD at the time? Was DVD available? It would have been VHS. Was it VHS? Okay. Then it must've been VHS, but I do know I did rent it again later and it definitely was on DVD at this point because 
I had rented it from like Blockbuster or something and forgotten all about it. And I think we still have it somewhere in storage. (laughs) Um, How do you feel about David Lynch in general? I am a fan of David Lynch. I appreciate what he's doing. I'm not a super fan of every single movie that he's done, but there are several that I, I do enjoy. I just appreciate that he's just a great weirdo. And um, he's also just a really cool, sweet guy. I told this story to Sebastian before, but when I worked at KCRW and, and people would come in to go do radio shows or whatever, and I also had uh, previously worked as a concierge for four seasons. So I was always used to making eye contact whenever anybody walked in a room, like they would walk into a lobby, like you'd walk into the lobby and you'd have to, you know, say hello, because that's just what you do. And so when people would come in, I sat right next to the door where people would come in to go to the, what we called the, the red room, where they'd hang out before they went to go on air. And one day in comes David Lynch. And what? I was like, well, I was like, hello and he's like well howdy (laughs) oh man so nice just big smile he was really cool and then i saw him once also at cinephile it was around the time where um there was a documentary about uh, harry dean stanton and so he was there for harry dean stanton's documentary uh, the new art who's in this movie by the way yep and there he was again he was outside and i just like i was like a reflex i waved (laughs) And he, and he, and he like smiled and waved back. He's just, anyway. So yes, I like David Lynch. Troy, how do you feel about David Lynch? I love David Lynch. I'll just answer that right off the bat. I love David Lynch. Uh, Like he's one of my favorite filmmakers and I truly think he's an artist. I'd say his, his work is inconsistent, but yeah, I, I just absolutely adore him as an artist. And I think he's like a national treasure that we have a filmmaker in American cinema doing what he's doing. How do you feel about Twin Peaks as a whole, as a franchise? My feelings about Twin Peaks now, which I I really enjoy the franchise on a whole, is not how I originally felt when it came out. So I was in high school and I was like exactly the same age as the characters that were in the show, like when that was airing. And I missed the pilot. I kind of missed what was going on. I knew about David Lynch because I really liked Blue Velvet. I'd seen Blue Velvet and Eraserhead and The Elephant Man. But when that show came out, it was such a phenomenon. I mean, you guys remember, this thing was was massive. It was on par with like Game of Thrones. It was being marketed everywhere. You couldn't escape it. And so I found Twin Peaks, the show, fucking annoying. <laughs> and it was just one of those things like everybody would come to school and talk about the episode that happened last night, which I didn't see. And so I was really bitter about it because I somehow had kind of missed the launch of it. And I, I wasn't in the conversation. And there were who killed Laura Palmer t-shirts everywhere in the stores. And I just kind of had this chip on my shoulder about it. Like, well, we live in a small, weird town. Why do you need to watch some <laughs> dumb show? with goofy characters it's like less than reality and so i was pretty sour grapes about twin peaks when it was rolling out you know i knew enough about it you just like i said you couldn't escape it so i could follow the narrative and everything that was happening with it and even up until the season finale of season two like i remember people talking about you know, oh my God, Agent Cooper walked through the curtain and and he went through the pool and Bob was in the room. And like, you just would by osmosis almost like get the show without even having to watch it. Then I 
went to college. It was like the first year I moved to San Francisco to go to college. I didn't know anybody and it was the first week I was there and I didn't have anything going on. And that movie opened and nobody was really talking about it. It was just kind of like it, it was in theaters. Like there it is. It's just playing. And, and the trailer was running and the trailer looked amazing. So the trailer just looked like edgy and angry and pretty different from what the show had been looking like. And so just because I had nothing better to do and I was interested, I was genuinely interested in the movie and I went and saw the movie and I loved it. And to this day, it's one of my favorite films. I like absolutely loved the movie. And then later on, started watching the, the VHS tapes that were coming out of the show and, and caught up on the show. Your story is sort of similar to mine. I wouldn't say I'm a big David Lynch fan. I'm always interested to see what he does, and I like a lot of his movies. I probably talked a little bit about it um, on the Dune podcast. I mean, I had seen Elephant Man in the theater, but he wasn't one of those people that I thought of until around when Blue Velvet came out. And I didn't see Blue Velvet, and I didn't really watch Twin Peaks when it was broadcast, but I knew a lot of people that did, and I had like a girlfriend who had the um, Laura Palmer's Diary, and I actually read that without seeing the show, <laughs> and... Then I remember Wild at Heart came out around the time that the show was on, and I saw Wild at Heart in the theater and loved it, and then even saw it again in France because I took a semester overseas, and we were in Paris, a bunch of my friends, and we needed something to do, and Wild at Heart was playing as Sailor E. Lula at a theater, <laughs> saw it there. So I kind of became a big fan and then I would catch like episodes of the show here and there. But because of my situation, I was in my 20s. I was living in apartments and stuff. It wasn't like the sort of thing where I'd be sitting down each week in front of the TV. And then the show ended up getting canceled. And I remember everybody was like, oh, it got kind of bad in the second season or third season or whatever happened. And then the movie came out and I happened to be working at the theater where it came out in Boston. And I really liked the movie because it was just so weird. And that was just kind of the stuff I was into at that point, sort of hallucinogenic weirdness. So it really appealed to me. And I mean, I would be catching it in these weird chunks where I would just walk into the theater and part of it would be playing. I remember the first scene I saw of this movie was the scene in, where they're in the woods with the flashlights and they uh. end up shooting the cop that comes to sell them the drugs. And I'm like, what is going on in this friggin' movie? <laughs> and, you know, eventually I watched it from beginning to end and I really liked it. But I remember all my friends who were into the show at the time were like, that fucking sucked, and they hated it. So it was one of those experiences wow. where I was having a completely different experience with it. But I really loved it for whatever reason, just because it spoke to me at that time. And it was scary. It was kind of a, a horror movie. Yeah, it's definitely a psychological horror film. Like, it's now kind of branded that way. I don't think it was when it came out. but And that's why, same, that's why it appealed to me. And then, like I said, when I caught up, with the television show later, I kept looking for elements of that in the show and was kind of disappointed every time all the goofy stuff came up. Yeah. Like the show is, is way more lighthearted 
you know, and the stuff is, is, is buried way under subtext in, in the television show where the movie is like front and center about these really horrific themes. The television show really skirts around that. And I, I was actually kind of like put off by all the cherry pie and caught damn good coffee and all the <laughs> jokes and everything in the show. I appreciate that now. And I completely appreciate what the show did at the time to change television. It was one of those shows like there's every once in a while, a show will come out and just completely change the direction of television. Like Miami Vice was one of those shows that changed television, how people thought about television should be produced and style and it generated styles for that era. Twin Peaks was, was one of those shows. Even the way Twin Peaks is set up with a murder, that is so many shows now. So many shows are about yeah. a small town where there's a murder and that's what kicks off the whole story. And I was thinking about it while we were watching the pilot last night. And I'm like, is this the first show that actually did that? And if so, it's so weird that Twin Peaks has had such a huge influence on modern TV shows, considering how quirky and weird it is. Yeah, it made it okay to be quirky and weird. And immediately, I don't know if you remember it, because you don't, you you were... A few years ahead of me, I was still living with my parents and the TV was on all the time. So I remember television during that time and television wasn't really allowed to do that yet. Like other TV shows still had to be very formulaic. They were like procedural cop dramas and, and or they were dramas or they were soap operas. And this was able to mix genres and be surreal and absurd and get away with it be scary and funny at the same time and have like the music be such a part of the character and this is the part i was going to say you don't remember there was immediate copycats right happening like right after that i remember my mom was really into that show of northern exposure and it like i think five episodes into that show they they had like a twin peaks episode where they were like looking through a telescope and they were like, what's that over there? And they saw Twin Peaks. Huh. <laughs> and there was Saturday Night Live was was having like multiple, you know, skits about Twin Peaks. It was such a, a phenomenon happening on TV. Picket Fences was another one, too. That yeah. came out in 92. That's what I was trying to remember the name. There were just all these shows that followed that were trying to follow suit with what Twin Peaks had sort of allowed television to do. And I feel like we're still kind of there. Like, you know, Twin Peaks opened all these doors so that what you're allowed to do on TV is more cinematic and more experimental. Well, there's even shows that are still kind of Twin Peaks ripoffs, like Wayward Pines and mm -hmm. stuff yeah. like that. They're still totally. doing it, really. We're not going to talk too much about why this failed, because I think why this failed is obvious. We pretty much just summed it up in explaining you know, the drastic differences of tone. Yeah. I don't think there's ever been a clearer, why did this fail on temple trauma? So let's get into <laughs> Twin Peaks Fire Walk with me. We need to talk about this crazy extended 40 minute <laughs> intro that has nothing at all to do with the movie that's going to follow. It has to be either the most audacious or insane <laughs> setup to a movie that has ever happened. Because if you're familiar with the show, 
there is a murder that is referenced that happened uh, a year before the Laura Palmer murder, which is the incident that kicks off the TV show. And that that's the story ostensibly we're going to see in this movie, right? So what we're going to see is the discovery of Teresa Banks's body, which was that murder. And we're seeing this through the eyes of several FBI agents, one of whom the supervisor is played with comedic effect by David Lynch. (laughs) And I mean, just the opening titles are bizarre because you're getting this ominous music, which you will recognize from the TV show if you were a fan, with like a screen static, just endless credits of people who are in this movie there's so many people who are in this movie and like so suddenly you're like what david bowie's gonna yeah, be in yeah, this movie yeah. <laughs> like, what? it is an insane amount of people in this cast and then if you didn't know you were in for a weird ride like the first shot of somebody acting is david lynch like a shot of him from the side yelling like get me chester desmond <laughs> <laughs> like, like no introduction as to who this character is all of this fbi stuff is bizarre oh starting with the the bus full of school children <laughs> yeah they're in the middle of like this bust that's not explained i love this this it's one of those it's just why i like david lynch like there's a school bus with a bunch of screaming kids at the window and they're busting we don't know who they're busting, the two adults that are driving the bus or whatever. They're holding guns on the children. Yeah. Like guns drawn on the kids. And this, the kids are screaming steadily the entire time. And yeah, one great. of the agents is Chris Isaac. Not an actor. Good old good looking Chris Isaac who comes over to get the, you know, the radio with David Lynch. Yeah. So they're just in the middle of this and David Lynch is like, I need to talk to you about something else. And he's like. You need to go to Oregon, Portland, Oregon, or whatever. And he's like, okay, Gordon. He's like, no, Oregon. It's it's so weird and and hilarious and kind of great. Yeah, I mean, the comedy in this is great. I mean, it's not for everybody. Not everybody's going to get it. But to my particular weird sensibilities, I do find a lot of this movie hilarious, especially in this first 40 minutes. Not so much later. I was just going to say that the comedy starts to really wane later on when it turns darker. Real dark. And you, you kind of forget. Like, there's two two parts to that this movie. And I remember t- totally forgetting about that whole Kiefer Sutherland, Chris Isaac intro and you know, watching it again the second time, I forgot when it was, and I was like, oh yeah, there, there was this whole other part with these other characters on this Teresa Banks murder. And that part, whole part's really funny. And then the tone kind of changes later when we get to Laura Palmer. My favorite line in this whole movie is when they're at the trailer park and they're talking to Harry Dean Stanton. <laughs> and he's, what does he say? He says, this place got busier than a whorehouse on Uncle's Day. <laughs> Harry Dean Stanton is such a treasure. He's such a gift. On his trailer door, it says, do not disturb before 9 a.m. And the joke is, is that these two FBI agents have been up all night because the shitty police at the shitty Oregon town that they're going to aren't being nice to them. Well, we have to talk about Lil. Lil. So these agents are brought in. Kiefer Sutherland is brought in as like an analyst or something. 
And David Lynch makes them witness this pantomime of this woman in a like ill-fitting dress where she does this whole routine with clenching her fist and she's wearing a wig and a blue rose. And this is all like supposed to be secret FBI code. <laughs> like <laughs> this is how you get your mission in this bizarro sort of pantomime. It's these kind of ideas that make David Lynch movies just so watchable because, like, where did he even come up with this insanity? It's wonderful. It's Lil has this twisted face and he's like, see how Lil's face is sour. You know, that means that the people you're going to work with are not going to be good, nice to you. And and (laughs) just like breaks down her whole like outfit the way it's been tailored and and Kiefer Sutherland's like yeah I can tell that it was taken in because the stitching doesn't match the rest of the dress and and you know there's code for that I mean every single thing about her is like telling them what resistance are going to be up against at this Oregon town yeah it's brilliant I like the um with the the other comedies when they later go to that diner there's this whole sequence where because they've been up all night, they just go get some breakfast because they're just they're not going to sleep that night because they've been doing the autopsy on Teresa Banks. And they go to this Haps Diner and you get um, Irene. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Irene's one of my favorite characters. I loved watching her. Um, and, and this is just something I was obsessing on. But, you know, her cigarette ash. Because yeah. like when you're getting like frontal shots, it's a certain length. But then when you get when it goes to like the side, it's a little bit shorter. And oh, yeah, I, yeah. Yeah, I was anyway. But she's she's so deadpan and, and great. Yeah, she's deadpan. She's just giving them shit. They come in asking if anybody knows anything about Teresa Banks. And she's just giving a bunch of shit. And everybody in the there's like two other people in the diner that are David Lynch characters that are just filling in the, the, the weirdness. Space, but. Are you talking about that little girl who got <laughs> murdered? This old man right. who repeats the same thing yes. twice. My favorite line is when she says, do you want to hear about our specials? We haven't got any. We don't have any. Yet. <laughs> yeah. So all of this is just so weird and delightful. It, you know, it culminates ultimately in this, missing ring which you'll know from the show right this ring has some sort of i don't know supernatural quality maybe you know okay so i i just got over bronchitis so i was out for days on the couch and i just watched a ton of episodes of this show i i watched way more than i thought i was going to i thought i was just going to maybe review season one you know to get into this podcast uh, but because I had nothing else to do all day during the day, <laughs> I made it to like episode 14 into season two, wow. nice. where they find out who killed, you know, who the murderer is. And I guess the rings in the show, I don't remember. Like there's Twin Peaks fans that have this whole thing mapped out. Right. That will, you know, come on. No, the ring is, it shows up in episode four. Like. I'm not one of those people. I can't retain all the little details. So I don't remember where this ring, the significance of this ring. I think it was, it was just that it was missing from Teresa Banks's finger, right? And they're trying to look for this ring. I'm t- probably totally wrong. There's also the scenes in the Red Lodge and the, the, where they're saying like Agent Cooper is the one that's like, you know, Laura, don't take the ring or whatever. Yeah. You know, it's like she's not supposed to like they're telling her not to take the ring. I don't know what the actual significance is. The ring is all throughout this movie. I just I for, I'm forgetting if 
it has a significance in, from the TV show. So, and that's the, another thing about this movie is it did attempt to bring in some of the elements from the TV show and pay service to it. You know, it'll bring in some of the characters, they say a few lines, it might reference one or two things that happened in the show to sort of pay service to to the fan base to be like okay and there's and then there's that almost like an easter egg and there was a lot more of this shot and was cut so there's like a whole hour and a half that was cut from this movie wow right where where all the characters were in it except for like three and all of that was cut out except for just a a, a handful of of characters so it could really focus on just laura palmer so there was like more a little more goofiness and a little bit more lightheartedness. Like Jack Nance is, has like a, a a scene where he's like arguing with the the super old man from the bank about what a two by four is and stuff. But all of that stuff got cut out so it could just streamline the show to be about Laura Palmer. Again, another thing that pissed off fans. Yeah, because, I mean, there's literal huge chunks of characters and storylines that are not even touched upon in the movie. Like, all of the hotel and that whole aspect of the show is completely absent, including um, Sherilyn Finn is not in the movie, and she was a big fan favorite from the show. And, you know, there's all these things that are just not in the movie at all. So some of that, Sherilyn Finn apparently didn't want to be in it. Some of the actors refused to be in the movie famously laura flynn boyle who was replaced right by maura kelly yeah and so so sherilyn fenn and i think the actor who played mr horn her dad like he didn't want to be in it kyle mclaughlin refused for a long time too oh wow and held up production the cast was pretty bitter because season two of the show was in decline the ratings were down and david lynch sort of famously went off to do wild at heart and kind of left the show to run amok. And that's why it sort of got way off the rails and even fans were beginning to be disappointed with season two. So by the time the movie came up, David Lynch was super enthusiastic, but he came back to the cast and some of them were like, fuck you. Like this is, you know, you sort of abandoned this project and Kyle MacLachlan was kind of bitter and he didn't want to be typecast. And he reluctantly, sort of said, okay, I'll do it, but let my part be small. So that's why we have Kiefer Sutherland and Chris Isaac. That was supposed to be more Agent Cooper. That's what I was thinking when I was watching yeah. it. I'm like, this must have been Agent Cooper stuff, and they just switched it. They switched it because he didn't want to do it. Yeah. Kyle McLaughlin didn't want to do that, mm. which I think is fine because I actually love all that stuff with those characters. I think it actually brings more to the movie. I enjoy it, but it really makes no sense. And I mean, we should say yeah. that David Lynch is not one to be preoccupied with conventional narrative issues. So if you're watching this movie and you're hoping things to pay off and stuff like pick another movie because virtually nothing does and, and none of this sort of setup here really pays off hardly at all well the setup yeah we never find out what happened to chris isaac and like he just disappears you know he goes and finds the ring and he disappears but i would say like I think if you're a, a fan of the show and I mean, you don't get, you know, Cheryl Lee's 
dead, right? So it's like now you're getting to spend time with her while she's alive. You're getting that. No, I mean, and that stuff I think all narratively holds together fine, especially if you're a fan of the show. I'm really just talking about this 40 minutes of introduction. Yeah, It's impressive that it gets like that long. Like that's what Sebastian and I were like, looked at each other and went, wow, almost 40 minutes before you even see the the lead actor. I remember when I saw it in the theater for the first time and I was coming into it familiar with the show, but had never watched the show thinking how, okay, this is, they're really stretching it, trying to tie in the FBI stuff to Laura Palmer. Like, I understand this is before Agent Cooper like sets foot in the town of Twin Peaks is like a whole year before that. And it's, it's a stretch how they're trying to like tell these two stories. Yeah. And line them up in the same movie and thinking that was kind of weird, even in that first viewing. And it felt forced. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about like the Red Lodge and the surrealism, because even after this whole Chris Isaac thing, we get this episode where it's Dale Cooper going to talk to David Lynch at the FBI headquarters. And we get this bizarro scene where he keeps looking at himself in the closed circuit TV and then David Bowie comes out of an elevator and comes <laughs> into the office and just starts rambling this nonsense. And we're getting these sort of flashes of the infamous Red Lodge, which is this sort of like hallucinatory netherworld in which we get some sort of metaphysical information or foreshadowing of events. I mean, even to this day and having lived with the Twin Peaks phenomenon for 30 years, I can't really tell you what I'm supposed to understand about the Red Lodge. <laughs> I mean, Troy, can you illuminate anything? Yes, Troy, no, help it's, us. It's This is one of those things that David Lynch famously, it's all dream logic. And even the cast was like asking, you know, what 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 is my character here? And he wouldn't answer them. Like, it's this is kind of why we love David Lynch is that you get scenes like this and it's not supposed to add up. Like it's, it's pure surrealism, right? Yeah, It's like pure dream logic, but (laughs) this was the first viewing. So I watch it again. I just finished it last night. And this is the very first time I've seen this film. I don't know how many times, maybe eight, but this is the very first time I, I realized that was Jürgen Prochnow. Is that how you pronounce yes, his name? Yes, Jürgen Prochnow of Das Boot. As the bearded, like, woodcutter. Yeah, who literally is just sitting and there. And his name is in the opening credits, and he's literally in there for two seconds slapping his knee backwards, wearing a giant fake beard. Yes. <laughs> I'd never caught that before. Well, I mean, he was in Dune. He played Duke He was Atreides. in Dune, that's right. So he was like, can I be in your... Your other movie, too. <laughs> I have the perfect character for you. <laughs> Obviously, there is the little person in there, Michael J. Anderson. I don't know if you remember this, Troy, but he lived in the apartment building that Fitz and Scott Fainer lived yes! in. Yes. Oh, my God. He, they would see him in the elevator. This <laughs> is the friend of yours that uh, lived in L.A. for a while that lived in the same apartment as Michael Anderson. <laughs> But, you know, he's sort of talking backwards or he's talking forwards, but the way it's recorded, it sounds backwards. And he's talking about Garmin Bozia and this <laughs> is a Formica table. And yeah, to this day, I cannot tell you what I'm supposed to garner from a lot of this surreal craziness. 
But for whatever reason, I liked it and it spoke mm-hmm. to me. It's funny because even though this movie was not a success, David Lynch didn't give a fuck because he would just go on to make even kind of weirder, crazier movies. And the movie that came after this was Lost Highway. And for whatever reason in that movie, it just grated on me. Maybe it was the saxophone soundtrack. I just recently saw the re-release of that. And I was like, I haven't seen this movie since it came out. Maybe it, maybe it aged a little better. And I went and saw it and walked out with my friend and was like, yeah, it's just as bad. I still hate that movie. I do not like that. Yeah, one. I was considering rewatching it, but I'm like, mm, maybe I should. No, your original sentiment is probably going to remain the same with that movie. But when, when you said that David Lynch didn't give a fuck about the reception of this movie, that's not true at all. Like, I think I read somewhere like he had quit smoking. You know, he's like a famous cigarette chain smoker. And he had quit for many years. And upon the bad reception of this, like he started smoking again. He was devastated with the reception of this movie. Like he really thought returning to Twin Peaks, he was going to get this 100%. Remember, like he was kind of on top of the world. This was at the height of David Lynch. Right. Wild at Heart, like won the Palm d'Or. He had done the Industrial Symphony with Angelo Badalamente. And he was kind of a becoming like a mainstream artist figurehead at this point. And, and then this film was so poor, like just panned by critics. And there's rumors that it was booed at Cannes and it really kind of put him in a tailspin hmm. after this. And it was also supposed to be a trilogy. I don't know if you heard about that, but like no. when they made the deal, I forget which production company originally this was supposed to be one of three twin peaks movies like that's how big this franchise was and this first movie played so poorly that they killed that deal and the twin peaks was officially like dead in the water after this and so i think it really like took a toll on him for for a while but and that's probably why after this he kind of went and just did his own thing and wasn't too concerned with you know, audiences, and and he was just going to focus on his singular vision after that. I didn't mean to imply that the reception of this didn't affect him. I meant to imply it didn't affect his artistic acumen. Right. I know what you meant, but I thought it was a good place to speak about like how this really did like it was a gut punch for him. Well, and that's interesting, too, because I can see now if this was conceived to be the first part of a trilogy then this whole introduction would at least feel like, okay, maybe we'll get back to this and we'll resolve this at some point, you know, whereas in the movie, you literally never see these characters again. It's fortunately because it's stylistically one of the, you know, David Lynch is probably the only director that can get away with making a movie where you get pieces of information that don't seem to even belong in the movie and still get away with it. Yeah. I think the Heather Graham scene was going to be later resolved in part two. Is she in the movie? I saw her name, but I can't even recall where she is in the movie. Well, she was in the series. She was like a love interest of Cooper. Okay. And so that's why she was in there. But yeah, she's, again, like briefly, Laura wakes up in her bed and looks over and there's this bloody girl next oh, that's door. Her. That's Heather Graham. Oh, okay, okay. I didn't recognize her. Yeah, of course not. Why would you? <laughs> <laughs> 
Let's get into the Laura Palmer of it all. We finally get to uh, our star, our Cheryl Lee as Laura Palmer, walking down the suburban street. We get that great Angelo Badalamente music. And I mean, maybe we should touch upon the music because oh my God. it's iconic. For me, this music is surpasses even the television show. Yep. Like the soundtrack, I would say, is one of my favorite, not just soundtracks, but like albums. I love the Roadhouse music or the music that's played when they go to the place after the Roadhouse in Canada or whatever. Yeah. That crazy, like double bass echoey guitar like no 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 like while they're doing drugs and things are getting weird i remember when that played in the movie theater i would always go in on that scene and i'd probably be a little high because we'd get high at work and i would just (sighs) sit there and watch that scene over and over it just really affected me that music that scene is i think one of the best david lynch scenes that's the one where they drop the dialogue sound yep. out so the music overpowers the dial and they subtitle everything. Well, you know what's like. so cool about that too, which I really picked up on this time is you don't really get a lot of exposition scenes in David Lynch movies. And it's probably because David Lynch looks at exposition as being sort of tiresome. And in that scene, you actually get a lot of exposition. And what is cool about it is you're getting it in this weird way where you have to read it in subtitles because the music is so loud in the club. You're actually getting information there of like what's going on and the drug Mm -hmm. deals. And it's filling in a lot of information. It's a phenomenal scene. Like everything, the the staging, the, the atmosphere in there, and of course the music, like that song is just so great he wrote that david lynch wrote that song wow that's really cool there was one of the things that because i love the scene so much i remember the first dvd release of this warner brothers or whoever was handling the the release of that remixed it because they felt i don't who knows why they did it but they brought the dialogue back up oh nope which just seemed insane that you know this brilliant use of sound where you drop that out because that's what clubs really sound like. You can't hear anybody talking. And I remember it wasn't until one of the Blu-ray releases where they finally got that right and brought the the sound levels back to where they were supposed to be. All of that feels so legit and it just feels so dirty in a good way. And you can just like yeah. smell that place. Like, you know what oh, it's, it's yeah. just sweaty and just cigarettes everywhere, all over the floor. And you know, and everyone's just so fucked up. And, and then all of a sudden, the other, um, I can't remember her name, the other girl from high school, the brunette says, hey, is is that Donna Hayward over there? And it like snaps Laura out of everything. And she just yeah. flips out because, you know, she really does love Donna. And she doesn't want Donna to be in this gross world that she's oh, in. Oh, absolutely. There's something that just feels so real about that scene. It feels like you're in a dirty place and and you're high and you're with people that are dangerous. Like mm-hmm. everything about that feels very intense and it's handled in such a masterful way. And every time I see that scene, I just keep thinking like, thank God for rated R movies about teenagers. Yeah. You know, that's, I love it when we get 
movies that are actually restricted from the audience should be older than the characters that you're watching. Like, cause Laura Palmer is supposed to be 17 yeah. in this. Well, and both her and Donna who are not 17 year old actors in the movie, right. but they're topless for a lot of the scene and mm-hmm. things yeah. are getting weird and kind of grossly sexual on the dance floor. So yeah, I mean, it's intense and Laura freaks out because Donna's wearing her blouse or whatever that she dropped yeah i mean i think that's not really it no that's not really the reason but that's how it's framed (laughs) well yeah i mean that's how she's you know i don't want you wearing my clothes it's her jacket that fell off and donna picked it up and tied it around her waist or whatever and yeah that's how she's framing it but that's you know that's not what it's about we would be remiss if we did not bring up the great julie Cruz, who worked with Angelo Balladamente on a lot of the music. Her song Falling is kind of the centerpiece musically of the score. It was written for Twin Peaks, so it was like a collaboration, I guess, with David Lynch. Apparently, he saw her singing or something and just kind of decided that she was going to be the sound of the show. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah, I didn't I didn't know that. You can't think about Twin Peaks without thinking about her. Yeah, and she's actually in the scene with the Roadhouse, so you get to see her. Yeah. Which I love that the Roadhouse was this place that was supposed to be this kind of bar where everybody hung out but played like new wave music with a stage. Really good music. It's sort of like shoegazing <laughs> 1950s dream pop. It was another brilliant idea from the television show that I had never seen before. And the music was so beautiful that they almost kind of made her a character in the show because they would just show long performances of her on the stage. And it was great to see in Firewalk With Me that they brought her back in that environment to do on an even bigger screen because it just looks so even more beautiful to see her close-ups like on a big screen and seen theatrically that way. The lighting is incredible. That's what I was going to yeah. say. Like that, the way the the blue lighting with her, yeah. like her skin. Is- I was thinking that last night when I was watching it, I was like, God, this, this shots of, of Julie Cruz in the movie version of this are like even more phenomenal. Like I love it. She's like otherworldly. It's so good. Yeah. I think what's so cool about it is that the lighting and everything really matches the sound of the Mm -hmm. music. Like you really feel like that's how the music sounds. And I even think the song that she's singing has something to do with like a world of blue or something like that. Yeah. And there's lots of blue light and stuff. I mean, obviously he famously had um, Isabella Rossellini singing in Blue Velvet. So I feel like this is kind of like an extension of that. I don't want to get too off topic, but there's a lot of Blue Velvet similarly that was cut, like another whole hour that was cut out of Blue Velvet as well. And it kind of was a lot like Twin Peaks. And again, like cut down to be way more of a serious film. But that place where they see Isabella Rossellini sing and perform had more acts going on and more goofy things happening in that. And it was almost kind of a precursor to the roadhouse. So I felt like they had kind of gone through a dress rehearsal in Blue Velvet. Well, it's sort of funny because Blue Velvet in many ways does feel like a warm up to Twin Peaks. Oh, totally. But then when you get to Fire Walk With Me, I feel like most people 
are like, can we just go back to Blue Velvet? Like, <laughs> had this movie been a little bit more like Blue Velvet, I think it probably would have been received better. If it was its own thing, you mean? like? Yeah, because I feel like Blue Velvet kind of hangs together better as a singular piece, whereas this, yeah. this movie, alternately, you require additional information from the show to even have right. a real context for it. But at the same time, it doesn't give you what you came for if you are a fan of the show. Yeah. So it's kind of like working against itself. It's setting itself up to fail in, in many ways. Yes. Whereas, yeah, like Blue Velvet was a solid mystery, solid story. Yeah, I always felt that Blue Velvet sort of felt like the Hardy Boys version of, of Agent Cooper right. before he joined the force. Yeah. You know, you could almost see it as a, as a prequel there. Let's talk a little bit about Cheryl Lee's performance because... It is quite a performance. She goes through a lot of different emotions in this movie, but her sort of shaking hysteria, I think, is one for the ages. I've always felt like this was a, a Oscar worthy of a nomination, and especially when you think that she was cast into this role as just to be a dead person, right? like from a headshot. And she had escalated to this performance where she is, you know, spearheading the narrative drive of the show and the range of emotion. It, this is probably the most emotional David Lynch movie coming from specifically her performance. And sometimes you don't even know why you're just with this young person. It reminds you of being that age and just being totally lost and confused and helpless at times and wondering if you're going to survive tomorrow. Yeah. Like she's able to capture all that. It's incredible. I love her. I think she's great. She's captivating. She's so beautiful. I mean, she's just such a, a beautiful woman, but it's like the range of everything that she's doing. I, I just believe it. The whole thing, like nothing that she does even when, you know, when it's understated, but mostly it's overstated because it's just, you know, we're going to build into so much, hysteria as she's realizing what's really been happening and who it is and you know that that like terror of you know when she even confronts her dad and was like did you come home last week during the day yeah. oh man that scene gives me chills yeah it's it's heavy yeah, for some reason you could just linger on her as she's trying to articulate words and she can't come up with the things to say but you just feel this like well of emotions inside of her and you can just sit there watching her do that and it's cinematic it's it's amazing just watching her facial expressions yeah it's a real multifaceted performance we get fearful going into hysterical sort of through line with her we also get that sort of bad girl part of her where she's you know getting into these dark areas of her life we don't get a huge amount of like the high school prom queen that the whole world sees which i feel the tv show kind of like paints a picture of and there is a little bit of that in the movie but if i was going to say if i could have used a little bit more just to see how everybody saw her you know what i mean because the whole town you know she's this golden girl in the town i don't feel like you get a real sense of that in the movie and it's not her performance it's just she's not allowed to have those scenes really in the movie yeah that is strange i mean i think it it works it would have been interesting to see if they would have 
tried to portray some of the aspect of her as the prom queen to juxtapose with with her as this drug dealing uh, getting involved in prostitution. I mean, there's a version of this movie that you could make, which obviously, you know, wouldn't have the David Lynch charm, but you could make a very straightforward version of this where you get this portrait of this high school girl who's sort of falling apart. And it's because she's being molested by a family member and, you know, you, you could cut out the whole beginning with the FBI agents and just sort of tell a more well-rounded story of Laura Palmer, where we see her facade and school and to parents and to the community being an innocent. And then we see this dark side where she's hanging out with bad people and doing bad things and getting into drugs and prostitution. And then we see her descent into sort of hysteria and madness as she discovers this thing that she's been suppressing that her father has been molesting her. But the way the movie kind of doles that out is sort of typical David Lynch. I'm only going to go where I'm interested in going. Why make a movie about a prom queen when I can make a feature length film about drugs, molestation, (laughs) incest, madness. We do get a little, a, a tiny bit of, who she's perceived to be at least when she's supposed to be doing the meals on wheels. Right. It's just for like a brief moment. Yeah. And I mean, Shelly's helping her load up the car or whatever. And then like she flips out because she sees the little boy and the older lady from the lodge, the little David Lynch boy with the mask, the David Lynch clone. Yeah. It's like jumping around and, and gives her the, the painting where he's like, you should hang this on your wall. Yeah. And she just like flips out and she's like, I can't do meals on wheels today and runs off. But I mean, at least we're kind of getting a little tiny fraction of like do gooder ness there. How do you guys feel about the other teenagers in the cast? I feel like the, who's the actor that plays Bobby Dana Ash, He really got a big part in this movie, fortunately, because I think he's pretty great. And actually his character, when I first was seeing glimpses of Twin Peaks, I was like, oh, he's supposed to be the jock asshole, but he's a lot more complicated than that. Yeah. And I really like his character because he just seems like a 90s kid. He's got that kind of grunge look to him as an actor. Like he's he's really pulling 100 percent in this movie as well. We were saying the same thing, Troy. We were like, why didn't he go in to do more? Because he didn't really yeah. have much of a career. And it's too bad because I, th- I think he's I think he's great. I think Bobby's a great character and he's complicated and very intense. Well, there's there's quite a few actors like uh, also the one playing um, Moira. 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 Moira Kelly. Like uh, what happened to her? Because I also thought she was incredible in this too. She went on to do some TV. I think it's more bizarre that Cheryl Lee didn't go on to do that much more. She's in some movies. I know she shows up in like uh, some Beatles movie with um, Stephen Dorff. Well, she was on a show called L.A. Doctors for a while, which was a a kind of a lame show. But I think she also lost interest in, in acting she sort of stepped back out because she was from Washington. That's sort of why they found her is she was, uh, it's similar to, cause you were telling me in Dune, we were talking about how David Lynch sort of just found Kyle McLaughlin right. in Oregon or something. But so she was in Washington when they were shooting the pilot and they just were like, we need a dead girl. And they were just looking through headshots and she had done a, a little bit of theater and she was sort of, fleetingly interested in drama or something and so and then she became this 
powerhouse as this character, Laura Palmer. And then I think she tried to do roles after that. Sadly, she was in that awful Vampires, John Carpenter movie. Oh, right. Which was so awful, like her character in that. Yeah. And then I think she just stepped out and she's I think she's a teacher now. And hmm. living in Colorado or something. The kid who played Danny Torrance is also a teacher in Colorado, I think. So maybe they know each other. <laughs> Acting isn't for everybody. So I don't really blame anyone if they don't want to continue with that career. Because unless you're a highly paid A-lister star, it's kind of a drag. Yeah. Dan Ashbrook, I think, is incredible. It would have been interesting to see had his career been handled a different way. Because... He really brought a lot to what should have just been this like jock, Mm -hmm. you know, like his friend Mike is clearly that two dimensional character. Yeah. Right. Mike is just a football player. Yeah. And that's all you get from him. But Dan Ashbrook really has a lot more going on inside. He like you see him break down and cry. Mm -hmm. He's weak. He's emotional. He's not as tough as he he tries to let everybody on to be. You know who's not as good as him is the guy who plays James, <laughs> James. the other love interest. Obviously, yeah, supposed to right. be like James Dean or something. He kind of yeah. looks like James Dean. His name is James. You know, he's yeah. the bad boy, I guess, who's got the motorcycle. He's the sensitive bad boy, right? Yeah. He's a bit of a dud. I don't have his name at the ready, unfortunately. Hold on. His, his name is actually James. It's uh, James Marshall. Yeah, there you go. He was in The Return. He looks very different. I imagine he lost his hair, right? He, he lost all his hair. I think he's yeah, almost bald, completely bald in The Return. Yeah. He's a little bit better in the show, I noticed while watching the pilot. But in the movie, he seems like he doesn't really know what he's supposed to be doing. I yeah. mean, let's be fair. Working with David Lynch is probably a challenge. And if you're not like a super intuitive actor, you probably struggle. There's a couple of really long scenes with her and James, which I yeah. honestly think are the most boring part. Yeah. yeah, of the whole movie. There's one in the school where she's just wearing the towel, like where she's come out of right. the girls' room, and they have this long conversation with that music playing behind it. And yeah, she, yeah she's like, "I'm gone, James, like a turkey in the corn." And he's like, "You're not a turkey. They're like the dumbest animals alive." And then she goes, "Gobble, gobble, oh, right, gobble." Right. <laughs> Oh, so man, good. That's good. <laughs> yeah, I love that scene. And then that other scene where they're like on the bike or in the woods before they get on the bike and it just goes on and on and on. Like I like the scene where she freaks out at him when they pull up to the lights and jumps off. Yeah, but before that there's like a 10 minute long scene of them together. Right. I'm just like, "Oh, just get on with it." Yeah. Like, I don't care about this relationship at all. Like, and even in the show, I don't really get what that relationship is supposed to be. Like, It's better in the show because she actually says in her diary and on the, her tape to Dr. Jacoby, like, oh, James, he's so dumb. He's so right. handsome, but he's so <laughs> dumb. So it makes more, actually makes more sense in the show. Like, James is... He's like a bad boy, sensitive, handsome, but he's like a dud. And they actually right. tell you that in the show. <laughs> Literally, he's a dud. Oh, James. Yeah, he's supposed to be kind of that in the series. So it's a problem in the movie because why do they like this guy? Like, why is he in here? And 
in the show, they make it clear, like, he's not that smart. He's just handsome. He's the guy the girls are fighting over, but they don't really like him. Well, the problem with the movie is in the movie, we see James and he's supposed to be the rebel bad boy. But then when we see Bobby, he's also a rebel bad boy. Yeah, it's it's a conflict of characters like Bobby actually is the rebel bad boy who's sensitive right. and you identify with Bobby, like you can relate to Bobby. James, you can't. Total team Bobby over here, by the way. Yeah. But I think Bobby is, at least, you know, from the show's perspective, more is viewed to be like this football player jock who is also this rebel bad boy who has this dark side. Which is weird because having watched the show, you never actually see Bobby as a jock. He's kind of never that character. They tell you he is, and he wears a letterman. He actually wears the letter on his, his leather jacket. The T, yeah. But he's not a jock. If anything, he's he's really that kid that doesn't like jocks, who's more of a punk. If you were to get notes on this in terms of screenwriting, it would be like, this needs to be cleaner. Because like you've yeah. got two characters. The, the, the nuances same. of it are cool, but it's confusing, especially when you're not watching it as a TV show. If you were watching it as a TV show, it's like, okay, you present Bobby as the jock and you present James as the bad boy. But then throughout the course of the show, you realize, oh, Bobby's not as squeaky clean as he seems. He's actually the one doing drugs. And James is actually really nice and he's not doing drugs. And yeah, he rides a motorcycle and has a leather jacket, but he's actually a sweet, nice person. And that's how you do it. But even in the yeah. show, they don't even do it that way. They kind of do, but they do that with James, but they never really do that with Bobby. Like, you just like, why was this guy on the football team at all? And why is he hanging out with Mike? Right. It just never, that yeah. never really adds up. I mean, that's sort of true to life. I knew jocks that were like that, that were, they were just like, guys who are just naturally athletic but they yeah. didn't really like being jocks they wanted to right. get high and yeah. hang out and be in bands but they were just good at sports so. maybe he, that's why i like that character because maybe he does seem more real that way he just ended up on the football team but he could give two fucks about it and he's yeah. actually mm-hmm. just wants to do cocaine all the time yeah <laughs> but in the context of the movie fire walk with me it's just confusing it definitely is the other thing That was confusing. It was actually Jay that brought this up with me, our mutual friend Jay. The drug deal that was supposed to happen, that they were supposed to meet a friend of Jacques, and it it ends up being the cop from Deer Meadow. Yes. Yeah. So what was happening there? Was that a bust, or was the cop a corrupt cop? I think he was a corrupt cop as well. Well, except that he draws a gun. Yeah. That's the weird, confusing part. He says, oh, here's your cocaine, and then he reaches to, like, you think he's going to be like, Okay, hands up. I've got, like, I got you or something. So, and that's why Bobby shoots him. And, and our friend Jay's point was that wouldn't that have been huge news in these mutual towns that a cop was killed? Yes. And, and went missing the same time that Laura Palmer went missing. Yeah. I mean, it's just one of many things that this movie drops. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was always just a little confusing to me that there was this interaction with this guy who we'd previously seen as a cop and and we never never hear about it he's dead i feel like that's only in the movie because in the show james says bobby said that he killed a cop oh okay it's one of those things they had to connect some dots and it doesn't really work in the movie 
but they had to pay service to the show. And that's something that's kind of fascinating to me as a writer watching like Twin Peaks is just that like continuity is kind of like loosey goosey. Like they try to have it all make sense, but it doesn't really like fire walk with me tries to kind of tie things together that were just things discussed in the show, but it doesn't really fully make sense still. Well, you can tell the way it's constructed. It's, it's done in reverse. Like they did the show and then they made the movie and they were like, well, okay, so we have to, Explain this thing from the show. How is that going to be? And it's backwards engineered. But it also shows like what lengths television has, how much it has evolved. And Twin Peaks was the show that kind of broke that ice. But it was still a show that took place in the late 80s when you'd kind of write episode and make it up as you go. Yeah. And then the movie came out and it had to like elaborate on a show that was hodgepodge thrown together and, you know, characters were made up and you had different writers adding different things. And and then so the movie kind of had to build on top of that, unfortunately. But now shows are, you know, most of them, if they're they're done correctly, are like written way in advance and they, they have like writer's rooms where they plan all this out. Oh, it's much more important now. Yeah. yeah. I mean, shows used to be made to be seen episodically where you could yeah. just come in any day and, and catch the show because nobody watched things in order because you couldn't. And they didn't know, like, maybe this will end, but it could just keep going, just, ma- just keep making shit up. And you could... Yeah, the soap opera thing of, oh, yeah. now there's a cousin who comes right. in. Evil twin. <laughs> to demand airtight continuity in a show from the late 80s is yeah. folly. And if there's somebody who acts the shit out of this movie almost as well as Cheryl Lee, it's got to be the indomitable Ray Wise as Leland Palmer. Oh my I was gosh. hoping you were going to say Ray Wise because, Ooh. damn. What a performance. Like, this is one of those performances that I can watch just over and over and over. Like, everything about him in this movie is mesmerizing. Like, he can just sit there. That scene at the dinner table when she comes in and he's just sitting there with like his hands steepled and he's just staring and it's so intense and that whole conversation is amazing honestly i i think all three of them in that are terrific grace abriski is terrific in that scene ray wise like the three of them as a trio doing that scene that's again like one of my favorite scenes in the movie is like you know you've got the mother who's who's in denial, who's chain smoking, yep. who who's shut up immediately, but she's skittish like a mouse. And then, yeah, and he's like this 1950s, you know, Mayberry father who's like, you didn't wash your hands. And it's terrifying when he says that. <laughs> Look yeah. at the dirt under this nail. Right. <laughs> I'm no one's going to start eating until Laura washes her hands. Yeah. And she goes in there and scrubs her hands and she's just crying. Like she's leaning in the sink with this bar of soap. And you know what I picked up on is he grabs her fingernails and he's looking at her fingernails yeah. and that's where the little piece of paper is found yep. on the body. So he's clearly got a thing for like dirty fingernails. Yeah, it's this kind of fetish. But yeah, watching his face when he goes from pleasant father to serial killer, and he just sort of like drops his muscles in his face. Yeah. 
to that different look. I love watching him do that. There's also that scene where they're stuck in traffic behind oh my God. the truck. And yeah. of course, you've got the good comedy of it being this old couple trying to cross the street, <laughs> <laughs> which is causing the yeah. traffic jam. And then the one-armed man from the show shows mm-hmm. up in his truck and like pulls around and is just screaming at them. I can never understand what he's saying. I can only catch little bits of what he's saying to them if it matters. Yeah, I don't think you're really supposed yeah. to. It's just like he's saying the thread's going to be torn. You know, he's just this dream figure that's probably in Leland Palmer's head. You know, because I don't think Laura Palmer is really supposed to be even witnessing him. Well, and as the car is like going to fucking burn up, like he's like, he keeps revving the engine, right? And the car's like smoking. They pull into the, the, the service area and the guy was like, you shouldn't do that to your engine or whatever. The whole thing is so intense. It's one of these scenes in this movie in particular where it's it's very much like a David Lynch scene. But in this movie, the emotional intensity for some reason is so engaging in these scenes more than some of his other films where it's just like, well, that was weird, you know, where you get these films and it's interesting and funny or bizarre. But for some reason, like that scene, like with the dinner table scene and that scene in, in the car where he's just revving the engine and they're just screaming at each other somehow makes sense. Like it just feels like that must be emotionally what this girl is feeling in that household. Like, right. even though it's this completely bizarre scene that doesn't make sense. There's no reason for any of these things to be happening at all. But somehow, I feel like it's the most emotional, probably not as emotional as The Elephant Man, which makes me cry every time I see that movie. Me too, Troy. That's why I can't watch it anymore. I saw it so many times when I was young and it kills me. I've always felt like if I was an actor and I needed to do a scene where I, I was crying, I'd be like, can you guys set up a TV and just put on the <laughs> elephant man during the, the tea party scene? Gut-wrenching. <laughs> but yeah, I feel like Firewalk With Me is this this David Lynch movie where you get all the best of, of the surrealism and somehow you're just so invested in these characters emotionally at the same time. I do have to take umbrage with what you said about the one-armed man not being real. I think he's supposed to be real. I feel like he's supposed to be this character that is kind of walking in between the worlds. Like he knows what's going on at the lodge, but he's also present in Twin Peaks. And Laura Palmer definitely sees him. She says like, what was that man saying? Oh, yeah. And he's like, I don't know. So like other people see him. He's not like one of these phantoms, like the little boy and uh, the old lady. I didn't mean that he wasn't real. I just mean that like a lot of what he's shouting could be something that's more interpreted that's that's going on inside of Leland's mind. He's sort of an externalization of what's going on inside Leland's mind. Yeah, that's a good way to sum that up. Speaking of, of that, I was going to say that's the other thing that I really love about this film is in the show The Killer Bob, which we haven't gotten into Bob yet. Rick Baker, you mean? (laughs) Yes. Rick Baker brilliantly cast as Killer Bob. That's really good. (laughs) He looks just like Rick Baker. He does. (laughs) But yeah, in the show, they really tried to make a huge point of this being like a separate entity. This is a demon that is invading Leland Palmer and goes in and out of Leland Palmer and 
he's exercised at the end and Leland is actually almost kind of forgiven of his crimes when Bob escapes from his body and it's Bob that's causing all of this. And I feel like in this movie, it very deliberately sort of counters that. And Bob is more of a projection or a, a manifestation of denial or how Laura cannot actually bring herself to believe what's happening to her. Well, yeah, she says that. She's like, I couldn't tell it was you. And then yeah. that almost hurts his feelings. He's like, how could you not know it was me? Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. I thought you always knew it was me when she's like going, who are you? You know, and like holding his head. Yeah. And I just, I just think like that makes that image of Bob so much more scary. And it's one of the things I, I really love how they changed that slightly tonally in this movie is that, you know, this monster is really, it's the person you're looking right at, but you see them differently because you can't deal, your mind can't comprehend the horror of what's happening to you. Right. That's a really interesting way to sort of deal with that. You know, I don't think I've ever seen that in another movie where the person actually becomes another person because the person being assaulted can't handle it but it's really brilliant in this film it's, it's something that again i think is is working on a, on a level that's so much greater than the show yeah bob i think everybody kind of knows the famous story about how he was accidentally kind of cast into that role as well like he was a set dresser that was sort of in the way of the shot when they were shooting the pilot. I did not know that. That's great. Oh, okay. Yeah. He was like, uh, there were two instances. I think first he was, he was a set dresser. He was crew. There's one story where he was in the room and then David Lynch was like, can you just stand there holding the bars of the, the bed for a moment and we'll just get a shot of you? Do you act by the way? You're in the show. <laughs> and then they, there was another take where Grace Zabriskie is having a vision. She like wakes up from a vision and the camera pans up and he's accidentally in the mirror mm -hmm. and the cameraman's like, we got to do that take again. Frank is, is in the mirror and David Lynch was like, no, keep it in. That's brilliant. Like, <laughs> so, yeah, he was sort of accidentally casted. And he's such an iconic image, too. Oh, my God. Terrifying. It's still to this day, like, I think he's one of the scariest monsters. And Ray Wise is one of the scariest villains. He never really scared me for whatever reason. I think just because he looks so much like Rick Baker. But I do think he's very effectively deployed in the movie. I love that shot where she comes into the bedroom and he's creeping behind the yeah. bureau or whatever. Pulling out the pages of her diary. Right. That's right. Oh, man. All right, then. Well, why don't we talk about the shocking climax of the movie? Now, if you've seen the show, you know where things are going to go. But the way this whole murder is staged is so wild and unhinged that it's impressive in how sort of terrifying it gets but yet it doesn't descend into like overt scenes of violence or gore it's just psychologically upsetting it's terrifying it's terrifying without having to show you everything that's happening the way that the the lighting is again here well you're talking about now that we're in the train car yes i honestly feel like the whole you know leading up to that so first we're in this cabin at jock jock's cabin Ugh, yuck which is just sleazy like everything about that is so sleazy it's this 
shed that this guy owns just for sex and drugs. Like, so gross. And he's got 17-year-old girls in there with his buddies and they've tied up and they're crying and they're like hitting them. And so, you know, they disperse. Jacques gets like hit over the head and then what's his name? Leo. It's Leo. Leo. Yeah. Yeah. Leo like runs out selfishly and just leaves the girls tied up. And then Leland Palmer walks in. And that's when the terror begins when you see Cheryl Lee look up and scream at her father. You know, at first you're like, oh, like it's it's beyond the fact that she's been caught by her father in this. It works on so many more terrifying levels like He's also the monster that is even worse than the men who are just in here basically raping you. Like, he's even more terrifying than them. Like, he's not going to save you. This isn't your father coming to save you. This is your father coming to do even more worse things to you. Yeah, and I mean, because we have that scene earlier also where um, uh, Teresa Banks is still alive. And we find out that, you know, Leland's been having a thing with her. Yeah. And we see that Leland kills her. I mean, we, we see all of that. But before that happens, they had hooked up and he had said, oh, why don't you bring your girlfriends next time? Yeah. We, so we get that scene where he walks over to their motel room and he sees Laura and I, I cannot remember the the other girl. Ronette Pulaski. On the bed talking. So like he knows what Laura's up to. And so there is Laura and Renette here. Yeah, he is not here to save them. Right. It's And it's not like, oh my God, my daughter is in, caught in this horrible world. What can I do to help her? He's like, oh, I'll get caught. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. And so he kind of smashes them over the head with some sort of piece of wood or something, right? I can't even really tell. He just picks up the girls with, they're already tied up. Yes. It, and it, it's done in this way that doesn't really work. It's kind of stagey. He picks them up and then you're, it immediately kind of cuts to this cool kind of David Lynch where they're running, but it's like on a stage. Yes. And and there, there's a bunch of flashlights that don't belong there that are in their faces. And But it's creepy as hell. I find that weird. Yeah, I think it does it's work. It's so disturbing. It's so creepy because they're sort of running in place and it should look ridiculous, but it's terrifying. No, it's terrifying that they're running and like he's also like laughing like a maniac as well. Like, ah, you know, and it's like the lights are going. Those shots of those flashlights which I, I think they were in the show as well, but those were also really nightmarish, the way that they could pan over the trees and, yeah. and stuff. It's really unsettling, and you just know it's going to end terribly. Yeah, so he brings them into the even creepier abandoned train train car which is just moldy and dirty that you know like people have been just been sleeping in there and, and it's that thing that you see as a kid that you're like, Oh, that would be fun to explore, but don't right. go in that. Like, like, don't go into that place. There's needles and shit and, you know, refuse and probably somebody hiding behind a corner. Like, avoid that thing. It was like a book series called The Boxcar Children or something like that. I remember that it was like these kids like lived and like an abandoned trainer and they made it into a home. So it all sounds good. But no, it's exactly what you're saying it is. It's not. It's not The Boxcar Children. It's terrible. Yeah. And he I think he bludgeons uh, Ronette. And she's like left outside the, the car, right? I think Leland hits her in the train car, but then she's sort of like dazed in the corner. And then the one-armed man comes to the train door and opens it. And she sort of falls out of the train. And then Leland shuts the door. Yes. And then he's only with Laura. 
in there. And they have this exchange again with like these creepy flashlights and the music is swelling up. It's extremely intense. And he's like, I thought you knew, I thought you knew it was me. You know what it reminded me of when he actually starts to kill Laura? I don't know if you both have seen Looking for Mr. Goodbar. No. The way that movie ends. Yeah. Yeah. There's like a sort of strobing death at the end that's very similar to what happens here. That scene is unforgettable. I'll put that on my list. It's hard to find, unfortunately. But yes, back in the train car. That's terrible, terrible. He bludgeons her. She's screaming. We're getting this incredible performance from both of them. Cheryl Lee is just like the terror that you see in her face and the crying. And and the music is phenomenal in this scene, too. I think it's like a swell of like choir music. So Leland bludgeons her and then gets out the plastic and then it kind of starts strobing and and cutting to images of her later washing up on the on the beach, but then he buries that necklace and all these things that are going to tie into the show as it is a prequel. Yeah. And then the end, we get this bizarre sort of really slow drawn out red lodge sequence Mm -hmm. where Laura is in the lodge with Dale Cooper because somehow he has access (laughs) to this weird nether realm and some of the other characters and we see this angel just sort of floating and she's watching the angel while that like iconic Twin Peaks music is playing and she's sort of laughing and then she's crying and it's just really beautiful but upsetting at the same time. And again, like when I saw this the first time in the movie theater, like for a fraction of a second, I was like, why is Agent Cooper here? And we're in, you know, but I didn't care. It doesn't matter because somehow, again, emotionally, this is just working on a level that's so good. I love being in this Red Lodge with Agent Cooper and Laura Palmer. It's just, a, it's kind of a great conclusion that makes no sense. Yeah. But in this world, it works. And I come out feeling like, Oh, my God, like just floored with emotion. I mean, it's cathartic in some way. You know, it's like, I mean, she's just been in agony for so long. Cathartic is a great word. It's a release after this intense scene with the murder and you see her release like she's crying. She's laughing. And you see this kind man next to her just with his hand on her shoulder. Yeah. And it just they don't say anything. They just ends that way. And there's an angel And somehow all these images just make you feel like you've made it through this experience. Well, it's that kind of cinematic trope of, okay, we've had this really upsetting ending where somebody's died, but we're going to show a glimpse into a possible afterlife where, you know, now they found some sort of closure or peace and catharsis, as you mentioned. But it's done in such a surreal not cheesy way that I think it really works in the hands of a lesser director. This would be some like ghost going to heaven type of scene that would be awful. But in the hands of David Lynch, it's something weird and emotional and beautiful. 
You know what's so interesting to me about um, watching just the show Twin Peaks and this movie is that specific music, and I don't know what the piece is called, but it's, you know, whenever there's sort of a really heavy emotional scene, it's that build-up sort of piano music that swells, and they always time it so perfect so that when, like, the character in the scene, no matter how long the scene goes, the character just finally breaks Mm -hmm. down and it goes, like always at the right moment. Well, going back to to Julie Cruz again, having just watched the show again, the, the episode, which I think is episode 14, where you find out that Leland Palmer is the killer. He kills again. He kills the character of Maddie, which is also played by Cheryl Lee. And it cuts to the um, roadhouse. It just shows Julie Cruz singing this beautiful piece and all the other characters who aren't talking, they just start crying. It's amazing. It's like one of the best moments in the TV show. And it's it's that same thing where it's just like, you know, instead of explaining all of this, we're just going to show like raw human emotions. And for no reason, all these other characters just are sort of floored by what's happening in the narrative, even if they're not even involved in it, just based on on music and cinema, which I think is great. And it's, it's how this ending works. I can always watch this film. I never get tired of it. And I think it's one of his best works. I agree with you. I would say, though, that when I was watching it at this time, I thought to myself, I don't know how many more times I can watch this (laughs) because it's actually gotten kind of more emotionally affecting to me where as an adult the sort of heaviness of it like kind of weighs on me more and as much as i love it i'm like this movie is kind of brutal yeah in terms of what it puts you through i'll probably watch it a couple more times in my life but maybe not that many more times i i agree i think it's one of his best but it's um it's as i've gotten older too it's it's just harder it's not a fun watch no (laughs) it's a a great film and the music and the acting and just david lynch being david lynch um i get why fans of the show weren't fans of the movie perhaps but um i am a fan of both yeah i just I, i think this is really well done but it's a lot it's one of those movies where i can feel that i can unequivocally say that i enjoy it but I wouldn't necessarily recommend it. Really? I mean, it depends on who was asking. Yeah. It's not that I wouldn't recommend it. I would be selective as to who I recommended it to because it's not for everybody. <laughs> the heaviness of it of is one thing. But there's also just the fact that, like, you know, narratively speaking, it doesn't really hold together in many ways. Right. So, you know, if you're not really a David Lynch fan and you don't really have any sort of background with him or Twin Peaks or anything like that, I feel like it's going to be a tough row to hoe, so to speak. Obviously, as we mentioned, the movie was really poorly received, both by critics, by the box office, by fans, but it did not kill the Twin Peaks phenomenon because in 2017, we got... Twin Peaks, The Return. So we're going to go there? (laughs) Let's go there. Now, I remember the three of us, I think, watched a few episodes together. Yes. We all watched the first episode at my place. You guys came over. I was super excited about it. I was giddy. 
I feel like I was probably a little annoying to sit and watch this with because I was I think I was talking <laughs> through it. Going, oh, my God. Oh, my God. And are you bringing this character back? Oh, my God. I was really excited about the return. How do you feel about the return now? Uh, you know, it's interesting because, OK, I just like I said, I just watched the original show again right before this podcast. And I can kind of see now the return in the title kind of makes more sense. It actually feels a return to the the tone of the original show. And maybe that's why I didn't like it as much as I thought it was going to be. When that was being advertised, I thought we had already established that Fire Walk With Me, even though originally on its release was not received very well, but had later earned a better critical response and now is regarded as you know, one of David Lynch's best works. And I thought that the return, the new Showtime return to Twin Peaks show, I thought I was just going to get nine episodes of Firewalk with me one after the other. But that's not what that show was. And I feel like it actually was trying to be goofy again and be silly and bring back all the comedy and the things that I aren't my favorite part about Twin Peaks. And also it just felt like it was too late to do that. There was something yeah. a little sad about how some of these cast members are literally dying. Like Catherine Coulson, I forget her name, who played the log lady. Like a lot of these cast members had to be done like on Zoom. Do you, I don't know if you remember that. Like they yeah. physically couldn't even make it out to the shoot. And it just felt a little late in the game and maybe not what we needed or or I don't I don't really know who it was for like who was that show made for was it made for the old show fans or David Lynch fans it was uh odd to say the least but in not even in a David Lynch way yeah I didn't connect with it at all I remember we just sort of like plowed through it I know I've seen every episode yes. we watched every episode dutifully but I couldn't remember most of the stuff that that was in it. I mostly I remember our friend Josh Fadum being in it. Yep. His character was great. His character was good and I liked the scenes he was in generally. I liked the Dougie mm -hmm. stuff with Kyle McLaughlin. You liked the, See, I hated the Dougie. I hated that. I was wanting something else. And I, I can't even remember anything else <laughs> though. That's the I mean, I don't know. Maybe I hated it too, but it's all I can remember about it. I can't remember anything. Other than, like you just said, jo I remember Josh Fadum, and I also remember the Dougie stuff with Naomi Watts. I've even kind of forgotten she was in I it. I totally forgot she was <laughs> in it. I bought it. It was one of those one of those Blu-rays that I, I will buy thinking that well, if I spend money on this and put it on my shelf, I'll, I'll somehow come around to this. And I still haven't even watched it yet. <laughs> so you've only watched it that one time. Yeah. I've, honestly, I liked that first episode. I thought the first episode was terrific. Yeah, it definitely had a couple of episodes that were, were decent. Yeah. And then the, I think it's episode seven. There's one standout episode that's great as a David Lynch piece with the, the mushroom cloud and all that stuff. The black and white one, right? Yeah. I could revisit that one. But it wasn't the show that I wanted. And I feel like maybe it's payback. Maybe it's like, 
you know, for fans of Firewalk with me, maybe this is like, okay, you want Firewalk with me? Well, you're not going to get it. Just the same way that original Twin Peaks fans didn't get what they wanted in Firewalk with me. Well, I definitely don't think I'll return to the return ever, but I definitely will return to Twin Peaks. Even just kind of watching the original show is kind of soothing and pleasant. Uh, If you just stick to the ones that like David Lynch directed himself in the original series, they're terrific. Like even going back to the the original show in the second season when it really went off the rails, I was happily surprised to see one of the episodes like written by Jerry Stahl. Oh, wow. That's how like off the rails this show was getting at the point. Or on the rails of cocaine. On the rails. Yeah. I'm just glad Twin Peaks world exists. Yeah. I'm glad such a thing made its way onto mainstream television, like was a phenomenon, like this weird ass movie got made. And, you know, it came back in 2017 and none of us can remember it, (laughs) but it came back. There's something to that. I mean, you can't say that about a lot of other IP that happens. So Viva Twin Peaks. If they made another Twin Peaks series, would you watch it? I I couldn't wait. And there was rumors that (laughs) that he was going to do a season two of The Return as well. Like it's definitely a world that that David Lynch loves and he always wants to go back to like he really honest to god loves this project it's it's like his star wars universe (laughs) it is and it's it's actually i didn't want to bring up star wars but i'm glad you did because that's it's pretty comparable and it's divisive the same way that star wars is in a franchise Mm -hmm. like totally it splits off into all these different tones and you have fans of of some of it and not of their parts of it. And I feel like it kind of works the same way. Like, you know, there's fans of the original show. It's a very different fan base than the movie. And then maybe there's fans of the return and we haven't met them yet. <laughs> and so, uh, but I feel like it, it does split off in, in all these different directions. And yet on a whole, like, I'll love it. I embrace it as a whole, but I kind of really reject certain parts of it. Like, ugh, but I still have... I bought the original series four times. Like I just bought every rollout that they keep bringing onto disc. Like you said, Jen, I love that this thing exists as a whole. And if they say there's going to be a, a the return season two, like I'd be so excited hearing about that. I'd watch it too, Troy. I would not be excited about it. I would probably be dragged to it kicking and screaming because I'm going to be honest. (laughs) Oh, Sebby. I really haven't connected to anything David Lynch has done since Fire Walk with me. So, you know, it's no shade on him. I'm glad that he's out there doing what he's doing. I love the man, who he is and the weirdo he is. We will return to David Lynch and discuss Mulholland Drive because that movie's interesting and, and kind of relevant to this movie in many ways. And it was also a huge financial failure. So we will return to discuss that. But I would not probably be very excited for more Twin Peaks. All right, guys. Well, I'm going to go get some Garmin Bozia and sit down at my Formica table and go catch Uncle's Day at a whorehouse. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gone like a turkey in the corn. (laughs) Gobble, gobble, gobble.
That about does it today for Tentpole Trauma. If you like what you heard, check out our social media presence on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Just look for Tentpole Trauma. That was easy, wasn't it? If you like us, hit subscribe and leave us a sterling review on iTunes, if you dare. If you really like us, head over to Patreon.com and get involved in one of our fabulous tiers. You'll be glad you did. Want to communicate with Tentpole Trauma? Send an email to tentpoletrauma at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. And who knows, one day you may even get your email read on one of our shows. Well, thanks for listening, and we'll see you real soon. Thank you.